Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. Black people in the Americas did something nobody else's history has ever done. Everybody else who's been enslaved has had just about everything taken. But we impacted food, sexuality, aesthetics, music, dance, comedy, humor, literature, political movements. That became our greater legacy. That's chef, historian, and best-selling author Michael Twitty discussing the African origins of American history. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by West Home Publishing. Publishers of We Could Perceive No Sign of Them, Failed Colonies in North America, 1526-1689, by David MacDonald. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On today's episode, we're talking to chef, historian, and best-selling author, TED Talk fellow, you may have seen him on HBO, Michael Twitty. He seems to be everywhere these days, and rightfully so, because he's putting forward a radical new interpretation of American history, grounded in some of the most convincing evidence we've ever seen. One of the things that we have to understand about history is that As historians, we have to use whatever sources we have available to us to understand the past. Now, for a lot of us, this involves letters, documents, receipts, bills of sale, uh, estate records, deeds, you name it. But what if those sources just weren't available? What if you wanted to trace, uh, for example, your ancestral origins without a paper trail? Imagine the difficulty of that. What Michael Twitty will talk to us about today and what he's really uh, been been promoting on his recent book tours and, and some of his lectures and cooking demonstrations is how for African Americans, a lot of those documents and pathways that we traditionally take to study research or genealogy just weren't available. And it wasn't that they were missing or absent or undiscovered but it's that they were largely destroyed intentionally um, through the African slave trade. One of the things that, as a historian, I've really come to terms with, and it can sound jarring and controversial at first, but uh, the more time I spend on the subject, the more convinced I become, is that the United States of America as we know it today, and this is not easy to talk about, is very likely not possible without the labors of unfree people in the form of Africans brought here through the transatlantic slave trade. I mean, America was a nation of slavers for 250 years. And we've only been rid of the practice since 1865, 150 years. So America has been a slaveholding country longer than it has without it. And we all know that story, at least we think we do, but we don't like to talk about it. 
One thing I always tell my students is to make sure you understand. America is one of these great gifts of history. We are the purveyors of freedom and democracy in the world. Uh, but we didn't get here overnight. And there are a lot of things that we don't like to talk about because they make us feel uncomfortable. But we are absolutely, positively doing ourselves no favors by ignoring those things and those people. So when you think about the enormous wealth, the enormous prosperity generated through the labors for 250 years of unfree black men and women in the American South, you did not need to pay them. You did not need to uh, give them any sorts of benefits. Uh, nothing of the sort that would have been expected of a European person. When you think about how much money was generated by them and the importance of American exports like tobacco and cotton that they planted, tended, and harvested themselves uh, for, no, 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 for no payment. Uh, when you think about the vital importance of those particular cash crops uh, and how America was such a breadbasket for the Atlantic world, you cannot take the enslaved people out of the equation. It's just not possible. They are that important. So Michael Twitty will speak to you as a man who has spent his life dealing with food, dealing with history, researching his own personal background. And the discoveries take him all the way to Africa. We'll talk about the importance of the enslaved man and woman in the South since the beginning of American history. And we'll talk about how so much enslaved culture, that is to say the culture largely brought from Africa, uh, has not vanished. Uh, but has really become the vernacular of modern America in so many ways. It is such an integral part of our story. We have to be sure we do not take those people out of the story. It's not easy to talk about the practice of slavery. I mean, as we'll talk about in the interview, uh, I want you to think about maybe if you've done genealogy, maybe if you're of European descent, uh, what's available to you? Ancestry.com has all these documents that you can dig into. But if you're an African person, uh, if you're a person who traces their lineage back to the continent of Africa, uh, those benefits aren't there. I mean, they're just not there. And that was because when African people were brought to the New World against their will, the families were uh, almost immediately broken up. Their names that were deeply rooted in tradition in West Africa were taken from them and replaced with something else. And because of that, all of the things we would expect to find genealogically are gone. And again, they're not lost. Uh, they were intentionally destroyed and severed uh, to make the system of enslavement better. So that was something that, for generations, African Americans were denied. And Michael Twitty uh, is really on the cutting edge of this, using uh, genealogy and genetic science uh, to really sort of unlock the history uh, of Africa here in the New World. It's a fascinating interview. It's a long interview, uh, and hopefully it opens your eyes to a whole new realm of history, which we haven't talked about enough, uh, and hopefully today becomes part of that conversation. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Chef Michael Twitty. Michael Twitty, thank you for joining us. Thank you. For those that aren't familiar with your background, you are a uh, TED Fellow in 2016, the James Beard uh, Award winner for nonfiction twice, I believe. 
uh, you've had a, a pretty accomplished career, formerly uh, a stay at Colonial Williamsburg. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background. So um, I am, I guess, a ninth and sometimes tenth or twelfth generation American. Um, I think it's really important people understand that that um, I center my story in this country. However, it's a story with a lot of different braids and pieces. Um, I am African, European, Native, and Asian by ancestry, um, and Middle Eastern. Um, my family migrated from the deep South to the Midwest and, um, other in the West coast and other parts of the country during the great migration. I was born during the sort of the return to that, um, in Washington, DC, my father was born and raised. Um, which was not a which was not considered the North when he was growing up at all at all it just wasn't that kind of city still isn't but that's quiet as it's kept um, and I was definitely raised in a Southern Black cultural milieu, milieu where that was the values the food the culture the spirituality the the folklore that I was raised in I didn't have to get it from a book I learned it from my parents and grandparents. Um, I went to Howard University, HB, the largest HBC or historically black university college, um, learned Afro-American studies and anthropology, but essentially all the things that I'm interested in study are things that I've been doing since I was you know, very small and I went with you know, my father to Colonial Williamsburg, um, as a child, because this area is, in DC area is very thick for living history spaces. And I just fell in love with the idea of doing living history and um, have maintained that for the rest of uh, rest of my life. You did something that I think really encapsulates what it means to be a historian. It really opened my eyes personally. Uh, it was that you used food as a primary source. Uh, and in a lot of ways, that's so much of what history is, using any information available to understand the past in a better way. So uh, if you could, could you maybe riff a little bit on uh, using food as a source? Sure. I mean, food gives you the opportunity to experiment. I think that's why it's so important. Like how would, you know, we often talk, have little anecdotes about food woven into our history textbooks. But I have to be real with you. I don't really believe that our students and readers really get what those references mean. I'll give you a quick example, probably the most famous one. Um, the Spartans. Everybody reads about the blood stew in the Spartans. Everybody reads about how awful the food was. And it's supposed to inculcate this idea that the Spartans were so, gave such little care to the aesthetic life, the everyday life, like the Athenians did or the Romans later that of course they were warlike because, you know, they didn't care. Their daily existence didn't matter to them. It was the glory of the battlefield of war. Well, that's not exactly true. But it's one of those ways in which we try to, we try to like, treat food as kind of this trivial thing. Well, food does play into our history. And as I've said in the cooking gene, I mean, um, the cooking gene, uh, my 2018, sorry, 2017 book that won the 2018 James Beard Award twice. 
for best uh, food writing and for best for book of the year. First African-American to do so, by the way. Um, I try to emphasize the idea that black history is shaped by food and American history is shaped by food. Um, for example, in the Chesapeake region, um, corn, mixed to malaise corn in the form of hominy, increased the lifespan and the likelihood of the average enslaved African-American surviving the seasoning of slavery and growing um, to sufficient spot to reproduce and grow old. And that had a significant change in how black populations developed. So the Chesapeake region became the heartland of um, the black populace in the entire Atlantic world because of one food, let alone the others. And of course, because of the Africanized influence on the diet in Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, Southern Delaware, when those folks get on the move and they start migrating across the country, they bring with them an almost singular diet forged in the hands of black cooks, eaten by the white and black and other folks were eating their food, cooking their food. And that becomes pretty much the basis of the every man, every woman Southern diet, especially when it comes to the upper South, the Southern Midwest, which is still kind of the second of the South, and into Texas and Oklahoma. So it's really important to really understand how everyday dishes and foods not only define who people are, but also give you a common, a common view into what colors their, their daily life, what are the necessities that they, get, that they have, what is sustaining them, what are they leaving behind for us as a legacy, culinary legacy. All these things come through studying food as a tool of historical research. It's so rare that we can engage with and interact with a historical document or source on a daily basis, the way we do with food. So could you maybe take us through some of the foods we encounter in our daily lives that trace their origins back to Africa? Well, a lot. And it's funny because I was reading someone, someone wrote something very snarky uh, to an article done by my friend, Dr. Fred Opie, who also chronicles the journey of African-American food and, they were downing some of the influences. And I just said, okay, well, I guess we have to go protest Olive Garden because <laughs> it's the, none the better, right? Because uh, we talk about cola. You know, uh, whether, you know, whether you think cola is great or not, whether you think deep frying is great or not, these are still some of the fingerprints of African-American and African influence and Afro-Caribbean influence on American cuisine. But you don't have to go there. You don't, have to, you don't have to stay with, you know, those foods or drinks. You can go to coffee. Coffee comes from Ethiopia. And also there are coffee varieties from West Africa. Coffee is actually just one of those plants that um, in, in our history has often been treated as an Arabic innovation. When in reality, having been to West Africa, I can assure you that wild coffee and cultivated coffee is a big part of the culture uh, and that Sahel region where all that trade took place between East and West Africa. And some of the same ethnic groups that are moving in that channel. So we have a, we have a, so in other words, we have so many histories 
we need to learn within the African continent because people didn't think they were worth recording. You understand what I'm saying? People from the outside looking in. And so they didn't understand there were all sorts of aspects of the economy and culture that you just can't just gloss over. You had to be in it to understand it. Um, millets, sorghums, um, cola are all indigenous to Africa. Okra is indigenous to Africa. Black-eyed peas and cow peas. Pigeon peas indigenous to Africa. Um, sesame seeds. There are sesame varieties indigenous to Africa. And basils were indigenous to Africa. Um, so we're talking about sorghum syrup in the South, in the Midwest. That sorghum grain came from Africa. Millet used to be a big crop here in the Caribbean. It's not anymore, but it came across on slave ships. Uh, Carolina gold rice was one stage of African influence. Now, they're Asian and they're African rices. Both came from the slave trade from Africa and Madagascar to the American South. And Africa has its own rice varieties that have been grown for several thousand years, indigenous. So we have all these things. We have the barbecue culture. We have the culture of using all the spices. We have deep frying. We have the one-pot meals like jambalaya and gumbo and okra soup and red rice uh, and fritters and so on. The green, leafy green sweet potatoes. So we have a huge vocabulary of food. And don't forget the fact that even a biscuit, a biscuit, a scone, right? In, in, in England, I went to England and, and Scotland and Ireland and Wales, and I understand how these things operate. But in, in England, nobody would ever dream of, of sopping with a scone. But in the South, you sop with a biscuit. Why? Because not only was that the poor man's thing to do, but it's also the West African way of eating any, any soup or, or soft food was to sop with the fufu, with a pounded yam or a fritter or, you know, a mass of dough. I mean, that's what you do. And I said, oh, my God, I've been living around this my entire life, not realizing that this is the same kind of thing when the men are sitting around the chop bar eating their lunch of groundnut stew, peanut soup in the South, right? And their, and their fufu, they used to dip into it and, you know, move it to the mouth and flavor this mass of tasteless dough, it's the same thing when you have a biscuit and you have some gravy and you just go to it. I think one of the really fascinating parts of history that's emerging, especially from the living history uh, department, and you see this at places like Colonial Williamsburg and Mount Vernon uh, near you, uh, is this idea of understanding historical agricultural practices uh, by actually planting and growing in those historical ways. Now, when we talk about you know, the enslaved peoples coming to the new world, and in some cases with just a handful of seeds, that's a pretty tall task. I mean, you're talking about uh, taking a food that's never been to the Western Hemisphere, uh, finding a way to plant it and grow it in a totally foreign land. That's really first-rate agriculture. So did you learn anything about, uh, in your research, about those methods and, and, and how that process typically worked? No, they were they were the they were real pioneers, and I think they don't get enough credit for it. Our ancestors were. Um, I think a lot of things got bounced from Brazil and the Caribbean to the Lower South to the Upper South, and then some things just came right over the ship, right on over, and you had to make it work. Those first groups of enslaved Africans, there was no direction. It was just kind of like, okay, 
do this, do that, figure it out. Uh, that's exactly what we're told. It, was, it wasn't some plan. It was like, okay, we got to work towards a cash crop. In South Carolina, it took a long time to work towards a singular cash crop to have a reason for bringing over enslaved people en masse. That didn't happen overnight. And I think a lot of people's view of American slavery was, oh, there was cotton, so everybody came over for cotton or something. And that's not what happened. Sugarcane was number one, the first crop of slavery. And then Chesapeake was tobacco. The low country eventually became rice. And then indigo and sugarcane, other things to fill in the blanks. And then, of course, cotton takes over at the end of the 18th century through to the Civil War. And each one of these crops necessitates a different type of labor, a number of laborers, and also skills and abilities. So the average slave trader and the average slave holder knew more about the cultural abilities and adaptations and skills that these enslaved people from Africa brought more than the average American knows today. Which is not to say that they weren't still living with a, a mindset of white supremacy or colonialism, etc. It's just to say that they knew where their money could come from. They knew who would make the money. They knew who had the skills. They looked for carpenters. They looked for blacksmiths. They looked for people who knew how to grow rice. They looked for people who had experience with tobacco and corn because that made their lives easier. So when it comes to the actual landscape, I mean, for me, to be honest with you, that's when West was one of the biggest fights I've ever had in my life was to get sites to really understand that you cannot call yourself having an enslaved person's garden, for example, and you want to plant it like a European would. Because we always planted our stuff in clusters, not unlike the Three Sisters method used by various Native American groups. And as you well know, there's no one Three Sisters method. There are actually like seven or eight different models for how you do that. How, what order you plant the crops in, the design of the field, with ultimately the same goal of having a commingled, um, multi-crop, diverse experience that helps cut down on it helps cut down on weeds. It helps cut down on insect infestation. It helps you know the state, the plants support each other nutritionally, et cetera, et cetera. And in West Africa, as I have seen multiple times, and I'll see tomorrow, so leaving, think to go to Benin, you will notice that if you go to a field, these mounds where the yams are grown have corn growing in them. They have peppers. They have cotton. They have sweet potatoes growing at the bottom. They have black-eyed peas growing in the middle, and, and they have watermelon and gourds growing. I mean, it's, 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 you, you can hardly tell what's what. So if someone told you to go in there and weed, you'd better damn well know what plant is which, or else you're going to be killing everything. But it's so effective because it's like there's no waste of land. And so for me, one of the most exciting things is being able to reconstruct that land use because it says a couple different things. One, it says we don't want to let go where we come from. Two, we're making the best of the place we're in. Three, we're passing this knowledge on to our children. And four, we are dynamic and not static. We are adaptable. We're not frozen. One of the things you've been very open about in your book and in your research online on social media 
has been the difficulty uh, that a lot of African Americans face in researching their own histories, their own uh, genealogies. And what a lot of people don't understand, especially those of European descent who have just stacks and stacks of diaries and passports and stamps and letters, is that because of the African slave trade, uh, a lot of those those imprints that would have remained or source materials that would have remained were denied African Americans. I mean, in a lot of ways, that system intentionally destroyed that path and that process. So you go to food as a primary source uh, because it's uh, it's a creative way to sort of still tap into those uh, those people uh, in the ways that they lived. Have you found any other sort of cultural remnants here in the 21st century that could also aid in that process? Yeah, I think that people really have to understand that, uh, you know, anthropologists really tried really hard to sort of like break down the Americas by how African you were. And that wasn't very helpful because <laughs> it wasn't accurate. I mean, I mean, first of all, it's a loaded question, right? It's almost like asking who's the most European in the Americas. Well, if you would answer that question honestly, who would you say? Argentinians, right? But why are they the most European? Because there was a deliberate effort made to bring in as many Europeans as possible so the silver plate countries, Argentina, Paraguay, and Uruguay, would not essentially be mestizo and mulatto um, former colonies. That was a that was a planned thing, but as to who's the most European, that's not even the right question to ask. Question mark whatever, like who's the most African? The same the right question to ask. Question mark whatever. But what's really cool and very powerful is that somehow, some way, the same stories came to different people of African descent in the Americas. And they all end up calling themselves by this word, nation. Nashal, nation. They were all nations. They always said this, this little word nation followed them whether they were in Guadeloupe and Haiti, Jamaica, Brazil, the United States. The idea that they were a nation within a nation. And that's, and that, and that plus the, the the dresses, you know, the the colors, the quilts, the folklore, the stories, um, the lang the the use of Creole languages from African American vernacular English and Gullah Geechee to Jamaican patois to maroon languages in Suriname to Afro Portuguese to Afro Spanish dialects in Puerto Rico and Cuba. They all did the same exact thing. They creolized the language, syncretized the religion, so it was a mixture of African, um, Christian, and Native practices. I mean, the degree to which everybody in the new world kind of did the same thing without much influence from each other is incredibly powerful. Because it shows you not only, uh, not only kind of the history, it shows you the minds behind the process. Like, what did each group have to do? How did they figure it out? And then we go to the influences on general society as, at all. I mean, it, you know, one thing about it is, 
You can talk to the most prejudiced Brazilian or Cuban. And you know what they're going to say every single time about their culture? They're going to say that without, without Africa, it couldn't exist. Now, they may have racial prejudices. But they can, they're not going to deny for one second the culture is, is essentially mothered by Africa. But in America, we seem to have a big problem with this. And I think it's because of the very different cultural attitude at work, which says that if, you're, if you are um, subjugated or under the lion's paw, how can you be the one in control? That's also an unfair question to ask. And it's unfair and not correct because being in control doesn't mean you're in control. Being, you know, the, 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 we might be the rail on the top, but that doesn't really mean anything at the end of the day. I mean, we still have, in my lectures, I talk about how you know, we, have, we don't have a single white preacher on TV that doesn't preach black. I talk about how the language, words like okay and y'all and howdy and, and, and mm-hmm, little simple things like that. How the black set becomes the American accent from Mark Twain onward. How Huck Finn does not Huck Finn does not talk like a little country boy in 19th century America. He talks like a white boy trying to affect the language of Jim, the enslaved man, who is his caretaker. You know, we have a song called Dixie that's supposed to be a Confederate battle anthem that may well have been written by a black minstrel show family, performing family. We have a rebel yell that was borrowed from African yodeling and Native American war cries. We have Klan uniforms in the early stage that were borrowed from the idea that um, devil dancers or masqueraders could be used to scare black people into submission. Well, it wouldn't even happen if those same white people who invented that system hadn't seen them for themselves during the plantation days, um, the survival of, of African masquerades in America. And if you know, in West Africa, African masquerades uh, are used as a form of social control. But when I wrote about that for the Guardian, people got upset. People got upset. They were like defending the Klan's ingenuity. And I was like, that's not the point. The point is, is that they had to be deep in our culture to even try that kind of intimidation. And I was even showing people how the outfits changed over the over time and what they would have looked like and blah, blah, blah. And people were just, they couldn't wrap their hands around it. You know, I was, in, I was in Mississippi recently giving a talk and it was amazing how many people in that room, elderly white folks from Mississippi, Natchez, Mississippi, could not wrap their heads around the idea of how much of their food and culture and music come from African-American folks and African folks. The basic folklore they grew up around but every single one had the same story for me, that they were raised by a black woman who worked for that family. And I'm like, how do you have this disconnect that you can't see the imprint of black people on American culture, but yet you, rec you fully recognize that you were raised by black people, that your first friends were, were black kids who grew up on the plantations and neighborhoods where you grew up? And neighborhoods, it just it just it just blew me away. Like, how does this, how does this mentally happen?
And then, of course, if, if, if you don't believe me on anything else I said, just know this much. Black people in the Americas did something nobody else in history has ever done. Everybody else who's been enslaved has had just about everything taken, and they've been, they've been dissolved. But we impacted food, sexuality, aesthetics, music, dance, comedy, humor, literature, political movements. That became our greater legacy. And then we found out about each other and swirl all those cultural movements around each other to the point where now the whole world grooves to our soundtrack. Whether it's jazz or the blues or hip-hop, or rock, or dance music, or mambo, merengue, salsa, samba, bossa nova. We, 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 are the, we, are the world, we are the music the world jams to, created in those slave quarters. One thing you always hear uh, from European Americans, or Americans of European descent, uh, is a common phrase, whether it be Italian Americans, or German Americans, or Polish Americans, uh, that is that they're going to the old country, right? The old country, we've, we've heard that. So um, that's one thing that has never really existed in the African-American community. And you have traveled extensively, as you've already mentioned, through the African continent. Uh, so could you talk a little bit about why that is? Well, I think, first of all, we, until genetic genealogy, for most people, that wasn't a provable thing. And even in my case, I have a family narrative that attaches me to Ghana. And that family narrative, by the way, turned out to be verifiably true. But that one, I'm one in a, in, in, a, in a handful of people. But I often tell people, if you have a historical context, if your people came from South, low South Carolina, the low country, and you get a DNA test back and it says, Oh, you're a lot from Central Africa, and you're a lot from this part of the coast, the West African coast, Sierra Leone. Oh, you already know where you come from. Because you can look at the stats of who arrived and know that that's you. And then if you find your actual cousin matches or do a direct ancestry test, and you find out your mother's line goes back to this group, your father goes back to this group. You know, in my book, I talk about, well, the caution is that you may be related to a lot of different groups through that one person. But that's because of migration. That's not a, no shame, no shame in that. It's like being part of, like, the communities that made up what used to be the Roman Empire, right? Who were Romance language speaking, who, were, who came from the Romans traveling and mixing with different groups. Or it could be the same thing as someone who has Middle Eastern ancestry because, um, Islamic um, um, scholars, soldiers, and traders were different parts of Asia. And so there's no shame in that. But knowing that, knowing that you come from specific and general areas of the continent, but especially West Central Africa, it's so critical because now you can go there, see people that look like people in your family, and go, wow. This is, this is uh, unheard of. And it's very powerful for us because we are meeting people through this system of genetic genealogy. We never would have. I'm meeting people 
from Senegal to Congo who can tell me what village my ancestors came from, what our name was, our clan names were, before they ripped away from us during slavery. And when that one person matches all the people in that one particular bloodline, it's, 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 it's just intense. Because now we have the keys to something that we didn't have for a very long time. But the, but, the, but the truth is, is that we were looking for this for centuries. We've been looking for this for centuries. And now that it's happening in our lifetimes, the way it never did for our grandparents and beyond, we are on fire. And it's a really beautiful thing. How do you share this research, which is so important, uh, with communities at large, especially young people? I try to, you know, I try to use food as much as I can. I do programs all across the country, although I don't do enough because it can be very difficult to be an in-school f- field trip. Uh, bureaucracy, lessons, lesson planning, uh, teachers. Uh, it's not as easy as it sounds. I mean, it sounds like I should be able to walk into any school if I wanted to, especially if I'm going to do it for free, which I rarely do. But if, if it's a school and I care about the kids, I'm going to do it. It sounds like I should be able to walk in there and just do it. And, I, and a lot of times I can't. I mean, I'm living in the corridor of two of the largest and most diverse school systems in the country. You know, those between Baltimore and Washington, D.C., with the surrounding counties. The surrounding counties are black, white, Asian, Latino, Latinx. And there are majority black school systems in D.C. and Baltimore. But I haven't been able to do that yet. I mean, it's, 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 it, and I got to tell you, when you're going in there gratis, where you're doing it from the bottom of your heart, the people who are working with you really have to understand and respect the fact that you are giving time and energy to that process. Now, every year I go to do a program in Holly Springs, Mississippi, where I talk about the food during the Civil War and before that, from an African-American perspective, because um, they have a lot of antebellum homes still left in the area. And this year we're going to engage the kids by actually having them cook the food with me as opposed to just listening to me. Because I really want them to understand that they come from a heritage. It's not just like like the southern food that they've grown up with. Is just, they just, they're just used to it. it that's, that's nothing to them. But they don't understand that that same southern food is a multi-billion dollar industry created in the hands of their ancestors. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So I want them to think about ways they can be entrepreneurs, ways they can get back into the land, ways they can learn how to become scientists, agronomists, business owners, entrepreneurs, chefs, that can translate that heritage anew for the generations to come. But ultimately, that's my goal. I mean, when I go to West Africa, I'm taking young black chefs who've never been to the continent because I want them to be inspired, but also bridge those two heritages together. Because, you know, there is a lot of healthy, good food in that West African food tradition, even the one that crossed the ocean during slavery. And it's a well of knowledge for health resources and for being able to tweak how we eat and what we do and have best practices for how we engage our diet, engage food, engage the land, engage with nature, how we bring ourselves back to some sort of kind of spiritual um, economic and physical balance 
Like, yeah, every other group has that if they try and want to, so should we. And it's not something we haven't wanted. So it really is a multi-pronged approach. Um, you got to be able to hit them on multiple levels and do so in like 45 minutes to an hour. And that's tough. That's really tough. But if they're middle schoolers and early high schoolers um, that don't really get like why all of this is such a big deal. This may be a loaded question, Michael, but uh, what are you working on next? So next is Kosher Soul, because I'm also a Jewish author. Um, I'm writing about my journey with Jewish food, about Jewish communities of color, how they cook, and eat, how that defines their identity. And also it's about Jewish learning and and teaching. I mean, it's a religion that's uh, you know of the book, by the book, with the book. And so for me, having that... Um, having that be another part of my food journey is really important to me. I've kind of like laid down the seeds for the next couple books in the cooking team because I really want people to understand, you know, um, food can be um, the metaphor of the vehicle. And it's so critical that we take none of these things in our own lives because we, so much of our culture goes in and goes out without much remark. And it's sad because there is such, and now I understand why things get lost. And it seems like nothing will get lost with us, right? Because of electronics. But I don't really believe that. I believe people are going to look back one day with all the things that have been passed out of them and still not be able to figure us out any more than we're able to figure out people who left rubble. And that frightens me, to be honest with you, because it means we haven't really learned about how to decode the human condition. And so I'm just counting on history and counting on historians to make sure that we're better than that. Michael Twitty, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.